Well, I literally just finished watching it, so. All right, so we are recording. The year was 1998, and a up, uh, upstart young filmmaker by the name of Hype Williams unleashed his directorial debut upon the world. And that film was Belly. Is that his actual name, by the way? Yes, Hype Leonard Williams. No, it's oh, not. okay. Just wonder. It's not. I'm kidding. Oh, I mean, it could be. Who knows? <laughs> All right. Did you guys see what uh, Elon Musk and Grimes named their child? No, and I don't care. Here's a movie that you never seen. The map is ninjas or a crazy death machine. There'll be smiles. There'll be tears. You won't watch a movie for about eight billion years. It's time for death. By video. Time for death. By video. And now the show will begin. Anyways, it's death by video. Ooh, I'm Phil. I'm Kit. I'm Graham, and we are joined by special guest returning to the podcast via Zoom, Scott Sherrod. Welcome, welcome. All right, so, uh, Belly, it was kind of a recommendation by Phil and Kit combined. I had never seen it before. I, to be honest with you, as I uh, was watching it, I realized that I'd actually only seen the final 20 minutes at a party one time, and I had never actually (laughs) watched Belly. So, this was new to me, mostly. So, the interesting thing about it is that... um, the film cost only $3 million and that was what? pretty much, yeah, wait for it. So that was pretty much all spent on the opening sequence in the club and <laughs> all the other places were like residences owned by rappers in the film. So DMX owned that white house. But yeah. So all the rappers like, like put up their own. Cause it was kind of like, I think their whole, like, we're going to lift up this guy who's or like a music video director that we all work with and and also they wanted to to live that lifestyle. Like all of this is like, you know, like the life fantasy stuff, basically. I know. But I'm like, here's the one thing. Whose fantasy is it to be like a drug dealer? Because yeah, it never looks it's good. It, it's, it's, I know. But it's basically like if you, if you listen to a lot of 90s hip hop, as I have, as a, a suburban white kid, I think all of us did. Um, it's just basically, it's almost like a comic book character, like an exaggeration, like this this hood persona you're you're slinging drugs you're you're uh you know killing robbing things but constantly smoking weed and getting bitches and stuff and scheming but there's an honor and there's a code and i don't know there's a lot but all of that was kind of in the movie as well so that's it's very 90s especially at that time it's kind of just a collection of hip-hop imagery and ideas like vaguely based on like mafioso stuff and Gambino stuff, like honor code, but also like you're going to, you know, live in a trife life, you're going to get stabbed in the back and mm-hmm. you wish things could be better maybe. And, you know, um, struggles with the conscience, but then maybe not also being a stone cold killer. And shit yeah. like that. So Nas <laughs> plays sincere. Like he actually came up with the story for the movie that he developed with Hype Williams and then Hype Williams uh, direct, like wrote and directed it. Um, there is a well, they, Yes. They actually, and I, I, I did not realize this because I hadn't seen the movie before. They actually film um, his his last verse from the song "One Love." I didn't know that they friggin' dramatized that. I wish they hadn't. It's, it's 
one of my favorite rap verses, but it doesn't come off half so good in the uh, in the film version. That's that's <laughs> the scene where uh, Nas. He's talking to Shorty on the bench the there. Yeah. yeah, and Shorty's talking about uh, dudes trying to shoot him from the roof. It's all from that that song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And Nas spits some wisdom at him. They they share a blunt. You know, the kid's only twelve, but he he talks and, like he's uh, he's really old. Then he gives him a platinum cross and. Yeah, yeah, he gives him some jewels. Yeah. Even uses some of the lines. He's like, "I'm ghost" and stuff. Like when he's leaving, which is which is from the song. It's like, all right. I mean, I guess, but it's it's potent symbolism. Jewels of knowledge. The jewels of knowledge. Yeah. So before we get into the movie too deep, has anyone seen anything interesting since we last recorded that we that we want to talk about? I mean, Scott, since you last recorded, that's been like at least over a year ago. So you must have lots of stuff to talk about. But Kit, what were you going to say? You had two? Mm-hmm. Who wants to go first? Let's let our guest go first. Yeah, I've got, I, am I lagging? I feel like I might be lagging. Uh, what am I watching recently? Um, can it be television shows just strictly for yeah, films? Yeah, I mean, we, we try to keep it to films, but if, if you want to talk about something that's kind of cinematic, sure. Um, well, film-wise, nothing too new. I've been going back in my... Uh, treasure trove of DVDs and Blu-rays, recently uh, revisited a lot of old, early 90s action movies, really balls-to-the-wall type stuff. Um, everything from uh, Sylvester Stallone over the top, I saw that for the first time, which is a Canon Films release, yeah. which is all about... Uh, arm wrestling. A pro- professional arm wrestler, and I was actually... Yeah, or arm wrestling, that's right. I put it, I put it on... Up and it's shockingly touching. It's really a story about a boy and his and his uh, a father and his son. Yeah. So that was a nice surprise. Yeah, it's a very bizarre movie where somehow him winning an arm comp- arm wrestling competition ties into whether or not he can remain gain custody of his son. That's just how the eighties what was, man. Yeah. <laughs> I also saw some early uh, Steven Seagal. I can't even remember the name of the movies. I, I confuse all the names. Martin for like, Death. Above the Law. Above the Law. One of, those, one of those ones. But Out for Justice. He, he ends up coming back from a, a five-year coma and rehabilitates himself. In a, That's one of them, isn't it? Out for Justice. justice isn't it? What were you saying, Scott? Hard to Kill. Hard to Kill. Exactly. Well, Scott, I know that you also saw a uh, more recent film, Bodied, in the last little while. Bodied, yes. All about the uh, the hip-hop art of battling, rhyme battling. Uh, executive produced by Eminem. It was a really, really great film and shockingly hilarious, to be honest. Uh, highly recommend that film for sure. Yeah, it's incredibly hard to find. I think you can only get it through like YouTube Premium. And there was a Blu-ray release, but I, I don't know how that's going to be distributed with everything going on right now. But yeah, Bodied is, is great film. It was actually my number one film pick of the year that it came out, which was 2018, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Phil, what have you seen since we last recorded? That, that's interesting. So I've mostly been doing rewatches over the last week. So uh, some stuff that was leaving Criteria and I rewatched um, Three Days of the Condor. Um, right. Yeah, like it, it's got its flaws. Like it's got like a saggy middle section and like Fade Down Away does not need to be in the movie at all. And it's mm-hmm. the quote unquote romance is borderline rapey. It's 
It's also, well, you know, it, but it's still like an important part of like the seventies yeah. paranoid thriller, and it came like after like the Watergate and like the oil crisis. Yeah, so it really plays into that really effectively. Um, rewatched Clue, which is still great. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I rewatched Philip Kaufman, from, right? That did Flute? Hmm. As Philip Kaufman that did Flute. Clute? No, um, it was uh, Alan J. Pakula who did. Uh, I always Carol get them confused. Clue. Yeah, he did all the President's Men and the right stuff. Yeah. Um, no, Kaufman did uh, right stuff. Oh yeah, I get them confused all the time. I don't know why. But yeah, uh, did uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers also with Sutherland? Yeah. Ah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I highly recommend to you guys if you've never seen Clute or Three Days of the Condor, check them out. I saw Clute a long time ago and Three Days of the Condor, I also watched it before it left the Criterion channel. Uh, it's a fun movie. I liked it a lot. I especially love the ending where the CIA guy basically tells him like, are you sure they're going to print what you told them? And then Robert Redford just looks back at the camera, freeze frame. Oh, so good. <laughs> but like, it's such a perfect cynical uh, 70s ending. Yeah. And, and it's just the uh, like great open-endedness to it. Um, also, I rewatched The Limey. Nice. Ah, oh, yeah. Yeah. The funny thing about The Limey is um, Nikki Katz's supporting role is the hitman. Mm-hmm. He's like, he's he's shit-talking on a movie set as he's like scoping out Terrence Stamp. And he basically anticipated the show Extras by six years. Oh, Yeah. I'm pretty sure Ricky Gervais saw the limey and just copied that that scene. Oh, absolutely, he had to have watched the limey. He's like, "That's gonna be uh, my next show." Yeah, limey is such a good movie. They also have the commentary track, which I started watching because I know it has like a reputation of being like a particularly contentious one. Although it, I hear it's kind of played up. I made it about like 15 minutes through, but I need to resume watching yeah. it again. I've got the DVD with the con- the commentary track is interesting because the commentary track is pretentious on purpose, and <clears throat> it's it's kind of like you realize halfway through like oh they're kind of making a joke about how the movie itself is kind of like taking the piss out of sixties culture. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> All right, Kit. What have you seen since we last recorded? That's uh, been interesting. I saw two things that are new. Well, a few things that are new, but I'll I'll just mention two. Yeah. I uh, I saw finally got around to watching Avengers Endgame. Oh yeah, what do you think about yep. the biggest movie of all time? It's all right. It's great, right? Uh, you can't hate it. I mean, I I think I gave it three and a half stars. It's hard to give it worse than that. I mean, one billion there's, people there's, can't there's, be wrong. There's some neat stuff going on. It's just not that. Like, I don't see how it's possible to really care about any of those superheroes. Like, you know, Black Widow dies. Spoiler alert. Who cares? She's got a movie coming out. <laughs> it's a you prequel, know, this though. Year. It's not coming back. I, I know, I know, I know. But whatever. They can revive the brand whenever they want to. It doesn't matter. I mean, it, this is what Scorsese meant when he said there's, there's oh, no stakes. Oh, don't bring up that old goat. That's true. It's right, though. There no. are no stakes. These are brands that can be revived. That's they don't really... They're two-dimensional characters at best. They are. Well, I like okay. them. They're fun. They're I fun mean, characters. I hope they make more, but it's disposable. No. It's as really disposable is, as Goodfellas is. No, no, not at all. If you, you take away Goodfellas, it's not, no, it's not the same thing at all, Graham. Nah. Yeah, anybody okay. could, they could make another Avengers Endgame, change it completely, wouldn't matter. 
No, no. I mean, Scorsese does the same thing with his gangster movies. He recasts all the same people, brings them back as different characters. <laughs> yeah, I'm so throwing that down. Nah, but it's obviously different. No, it's not. It's not entirely different, Graham, and you're just not being contrarian for the sake Same of it. Same thing. The Scorsese Mafia universe, or the SMU, as I like to call it. Yeah, is is uh, is basically backed by a billion-dollar corporation and is uh, very branded and guarded and uh, important intellectual property. It is the same thing. You're right, yeah. Graham. Thank you, Kit. What's the other new thing you watched? <laughs> I, uh... After I broke you? Anyway, uh, the other film that I saw was Manhunter. Yes. Oh, nice. Now that is a fantastic film. Yes. Yeah, it was good. I liked it. Uh, and, it was and quite good. My... my... Um, I, I almost like I know this is a bit uh, a bit uh, treasonous to say, but it's my favorite depiction of Hannibal Lecter of any any film version, even Michael almost, Yeah, but it's not really a fair comparison because he's he's a tertiary character. He's not the focus at all. He's just like an interesting ter- tertiary character that has like a subplot, and then that's it. Yeah, he's barely in it. Which is what he was. Originally in, in the book, I'm sure. And yeah, in yeah. the book, yeah. And in the book. Yeah, they amplify him on the show, although I do recommend the show highly. Yes, can, Hannibal the Show you, is, is dynamite. You can find it whatever on whatever preferred streaming service you have. Definitely check it out. But um, no, I really liked it. Uh, the, the guy who played Will Graham, I wasn't impressed by. What's his What's his name? William Peterson. William Peterson. Eh, it was okay. I guess uh, he's supposed to kind of play it like a bit almost sociopathic. He's such a weird guy because he was like a football player that William Freakin was just like, I'm going to play you in movies. And that's it. Like, that's how he got the role in um, To Live and Die in L.A. And then from there, he went but into... I think, um, but I heard that William Friedkin discovered uh, William Peterson um, on stage in Chicago doing Streetcar Named Desire because he was really? playing Kowalski at the time, yeah. Oh, interesting. Which I could totally see, like, him in, like, a white beater. Yeah, I just, I just remember, like, reading Friedkin's book and being like, William Peterson was the best rookie, like, fullback that some university ever had. And, like, he just went on and on about that. And then I cast him into Live and Die in L.A., and he was a movie star. <laughs> I mean, this is the first I've ever heard of him, so. He star- He was the star of CSI. Oh, okay. He played Reese Witherspoon's dad in Fear. I was going to bring up that. I didn't see that one. He's always been around. It holds up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's quite good. That's anyway, sad. yeah, Tom Noonan I think was good as the uh... yeah, the Inagata Devita sequence is pretty amazing in that uh, film. I I that's I said in my review I think it's the uh, probably the best use of Inagata Devita I've seen in movies. Next to Freddy's Dead, obviously. <laughs> 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 obviously, <Yeah>. yeah. competition. <laughs> Although I uh, so I I attempted a while ago to watch Rob Zombie's Three from Hell and couldn't do it. And then um, I saw a clip online. Uh, there's an Inagata Devita scene in Three from Hell set in Mexico. Uh, Does he do the whole song? He just he just picks long rock songs and, and sets a scene to them now? Is pretty that much, thing? yeah. And it's, no. um, <laughs> he has Mexicans wearing luchador masks and, and as a hit squad going to kill the Firefly family. Spoiler alert, the Firefly flam- family is able to take out like three dozen like... Mexican soldiers with lucha masks pretty easy. Well, of course they did. If they survived the ending of The Devil's Rejects, they're indestructible <laughs> supernatural <laughs> beings. Yeah, <laughs> that that cannot be killed. But, I mean, it's nice that Sid Haig got to... Uh, I mean, I, I think he loved doing that, so it's nice that he got to go out with that. 
Yeah, I mean, he's not in it much. No way. Um, I'll talk about two films that I watched. Um, Hatchet Man from 2003, which is a movie I uh, I don't really recommend at all. It's the kind of movie that like I would expect to come out in the late 80s or early 90s. It's allegedly a slasher film in that a guy wears a mask and kills strippers. Um, <laughs> well. <laughs> but... There's no... I mean, how many ingredients do you need in the slasher film? You need a lot more than that to make this. <laughs> you but need it, a luchador mask and Inagata de Vida. Yeah. That would help. No, but it's... Um, uh, it, yeah, I, I don't know. Like it's, I watched the entire thing because I was like, I can't believe this got made in 2003. And it's very bizarre. It's set in L.A. It's shot in L.A. It feels very much like an L.A. movie. There's lots of sprawl. And I'm pretty sure the guy from the room, the me underwears guy is in it. Cause there's this character who for no reason acts like a weirdo the entire time. And he looks exactly like the me underwears guy from the room. So it wouldn't surprise. I didn't look it up because I didn't care enough about the movie, but uh, it was interesting. And then the other film that I watched that I, uh, I saw yesterday and really, really dug is Deadpool two. Oh, oh, Deadpool two. Okay. Yes. I saw that in theaters. I thought it was fun too. Yeah, it's a very fun movie. It's another three and a half star movie. Yeah, it uh, it kind of pokes fun at the whole. I just love the whole jokes of like, really, you couldn't afford to have any other X Men in the movie, and then they kind of show like the the entire cast of First Class just closing a door so they don't have to listen to them. Awesome. Uh, yeah, so some fun jokes, and also, you know, Ryan Reynolds. Like, I think him and Deadpool are the you know it's hand in glove, like it's the right character for him because he never really seemed... You didn't, you didn't feel the same way with the Green Lantern is what you're saying. No, I never saw Green Lantern, so I can't really comment, but um, although there's a funny... He does thing. reference uh, Green Lantern pretty heavy in this movie, yeah. Yeah, that ending thing, so... Uh, well, was, well, we don't want to... I don't know if you want to spoil it, but it's a fun movie. Spoiler, so at a certain point, Deadpool gains time travel capability and <laughs> goes back in time to when Ryan Reynolds the actor is reading the Green Lantern script and it just shows Ryan Reynolds reading the Green Lantern script saying, all right, Ryan, you finally hit the big time. And then boom, and he gets shot in the head and Deadpool's <laughs> here and he just says, you're welcome, Canada, and then walks away and that's it. That's kind of... It's funny that the, uh, the uh, you know, the rest of like the Marvel gang are such snobs about Deadpool and won't hang out with him because his ability to time travel would have come in handy for the Avengers because that is the main plot point of Endgame. That is true. However, at the time, his character, the character rights were owned at Fox, which hadn't yet merged with Disney. Ah. Uh, there, there, was, there was like, people were holding out against hope that Deadpool would show up during Endgame and just sort of be like, yes, the lawyers worked it out. I'm here. But... No, it didn't happen, unfortunately. They didn't close the deal in time. Um, Thanks, right. capitalism. I know. So let's, uh, let's talk about Belly. Let's get into it. It's a it's a juicy subject. There's a yeah. so I was I was interested to know that like the film like I was saying earlier cost three million, which is incredibly low for I, I thought for sure it'd be like a twenty million dollar or ten million dollar movie, 
cost three million. They maximized the hell out of that budget. I don't know how they went to uh, Jamaica, but they did. <laughs> um, maybe they did. May yeah, maybe they just shot it in Jamaica. They um, called it favors. Yeah. Oh, for <laughs> sure. Um, and they probably took a boot. But it it surprisingly didn't do as well financially as I I thought it would. Like I thought for sure it would have like. Because I knew it was kind of a more of a cult movie, and I thought like, oh, it probably grossed like maybe 15, 20 million. Only grossed like nine. Wide release. Was it released theatrically though? Barely, I think. It was. It was pretty limited theatrically. Yeah, it was. It's very. Strange. I don't know if it got Canadian people. It did actually, because in the box office results, it said nine million USA and Canada. So it it might have played like at okay. probably, probably a couple theaters in Toronto. At the Cumberland. At the Cumberland, probably may I don't know, maybe at the Cumberland. But Phil, you were in Toronto at the time. Did it, do you recall it ever playing in theaters here? I don't. I remember the soundtrack coming out. Like the soundtrack was kind of a big deal because like yeah. all the like all the white dudes in my high school listened to rap at that time. That's, as yeah, yeah, that was a big soundtrack. It's a good yeah. soundtrack. That's one of the uh, positives of the movie is that uh, the soundtrack mm. is consistently good. Yeah, I kind of feel like it's the equivalent to the <laughs> pop and rap movies as. Uh, Repo Man was to punk movies where the soundtrack traveled further than the movie itself did. Um, I feel like Repo Man might have been a better film though overall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that's that's not hard to say. There are two things, I mean we should go over the movie chronologically, but there are yeah. two things that I did want to highlight, which was the um, the lighting choices. Yeah. Um, which were very the lighting, interesting. The, the color palette of the film is all over the place. And that's it's blue and red mostly. Loves those blue gels and those red gels. Oh yeah. And it's like hyper contrasty. And then there's a scene where where the two girlfriends are walking down the street that looks like it's from a, a like a, a made for TV Christmas movie. In oh yeah. It was it was very much like oh my god like where did this bland lighting come from? And there's uh, also like oh wow lots of lens flares here. I guess they didn't. Uh... Didn't try to reduce yeah, on that one. Like it, it, like I hate to say it, but it feels like this movie was shot like a music video. Where like we're just gonna mess around and see what works. Like they randomly but, star filters. I think on it totally was visually yeah. they're looking more for what looks cool rather than any kind of consistency for sure. Um, the shots are really weird. I, I noted that too. Everything from a lot of dolly tracking to the slow motion. It is shot like a music video, quite frankly. Yeah, no, there's a lot of low angles on it. So, some of the shots, yeah, like weird, like way too, too low. Like you see mostly hood and then like you can kind of see their heads sitting in the car, but it's mostly the yeah. hood that you're watching. There's not much reflecting off it. Right. Yeah, interesting no. stylistic choices. And then the other thing I wanted to mention was the uh, bizarre use of titles um, just to like indicate time and place. Completely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Contrarily and completely pointlessly. Yeah, my favorite was of course um, my favorite of course being uh, New Year's Eve, December thirty first, nineteen ninety nine. Oh, yeah, wasn't New Year's Eve freaking September twenty eighth? Was it? No, but I do have to say this movie is set in my favorite time period, which we discussed the last time, the near future. Because one year in the future. Yeah, yeah, that's very <laughs> Yeah, Scott, last time, the episode hasn't gone up yet, but we watched Surf Nazis Must Die. And um, and that, that movie is set in the near future as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the film came out in eight, 98. It was probably shot around 97. And it, um, 
it is set in 1999 on the eve of the millennium. Um, yeah. Well, it's it takes place during the course of I guess from spring to to New, New Year's. Year's to New Year's. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So who wants to start off the plot of this? I just wanted to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll no, go, uh, yield wants? the floor, but just like <laughs> just just the way it. Uh, Way it starts. I wrote too many notes again, so then they're hard to find. But just uh, just how it starts is just quintessential like '90s hip hop rap music video. It's just a blacklight strip club that they rob. Um, that and uh, there's almost immediate Godfather references. It's so weird when they walk into just the, like going hey, to get guns. Yeah. Like, was it a strip club? Because I, I know there were girls dancing, and but I it, thought it was a strip club. It was way too packed though, and it was also like. Very odd how like the guy walked to the back and opened up the bathroom door and a girl's just sitting there on the toilet and she just sort of like gets up and leaves. She's smoking a blunt. And doesn't kind of like say like, hey, close the door. What are you doing? Well, she, she's in there smoking a blunt. I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she was guarding the gun because that's where the gun is hidden. So maybe she was part of the deal. This movie was shot. Um, yes. It was shot at the tunnel, which is a probably the most iconic of... Um, Manhattan's rap clubs. They closed like after the 90s. And it's now where Uber's uh, New York headquarters is. Ew. Of course. Yeah. And also the tunnel, it was also where the DMX video for Get Me Dog was shot. So like okay. DMX's first album when it started and that was hot came out and that was in 98. And that was just uh, him on stage, right? That was a, actually... Just him on stage, yeah. But then like, yeah, like shots of, like Russell Simmons. And, like, we were oh, okay, yeah. And guys, I do want to point out, because we're doing this over Zoom and it's very hard to, to edit it, when you need to say something, wait until the person speaking stops and then start talking. Sorry. I'm trying to use, like, raising my hand when I when I do have something I want to say, instead of just interrupting like I usually do. Yeah. It's very hard to edit these. Um, all right. So, Scott, since you're our guest, you start off. Where does the, how does the movie start? Oh, jeez. Well, as you say, the, the movie opens with a, a robbery of what we believe to be, it could have been a strip club, could have been a, a rap club, some sort of club. Never really made clear who they're robbing or why, which was kind of one of my issues with the whole storytelling. Um, also, from- it, sorry, it's, it's, it's very seizure-inducing. It's... <laughs> like... Uh... It's very intense. I just explained. Don't interrupt anybody. And within five I'm seconds. trying to raise hands. <laughs> just raise your hand if you want to speak. Yeah, and the, and the, entire, the entire sequence is memorable. I do remember when this movie came out, that's what everyone talked about with regards to the movie. There was two big sequences. It was the opening, which everyone talked about. And then the uh, the Scarface knockoff where they have the original Dun Dada Bad Boy. And um, that was one thing that was always taken away was the opening sequence. They set it to, I forget the name of the group. That Does anyone know the name? Yeah, what was that song? I should have written these things down. Who knows? It's a Back to Life by Soul to Soul is the acapella version. Yes. Very popular song, and they set it all to that for the first, I don't know, two, three minutes, however long it lasts, and uh, it's catchy. Yeah. Um, from there, it really it really transitions into, you know, this movie is really a combination of two films for me. It's, it's Menace to Society and Scarterface. And 
this really feels menace to society. Yeah, go ahead, girl. Oh, oh no, like, yeah, I, it's, it's very much as menace to society, which I am a big fan of that film. But it also, weirdly, and I'll get to it when it gets to the end, almost homages Ed Wood's The Violent Years, which we watched on this podcast many times. And I'll, I'll bring it up when we get there, but I just want to drop that out. But continue, Scott. I don't know. I'm not sure if that was probably an influence of Nas or not. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, happy coincidence. <laughs> probably the latter. But, uh, from there, the film basically transitions into an introduction of who these characters are through a first-person narration of Nas's character, Sincere. Um, the story doesn't really make a whole lot of sense to me, to be completely honest, so it's hard to explain it. They're basically two friends that may or may not have grown up together, but are loosely connected through what association we don't know other than crime. Mm-hmm. One of them thinks about the future and the other one's the wild card who's played by DMX. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, they do set up uh, pretty immediately like a contrast between the two characters. Uh, DMX's character is uh, Bundy or Buns. Um, and just, just the way they, uh, their love life works, like with Nas, it's like, you know, his, uh, his, his lovely wife and child, and it's kind of a, a nice idyllic kind of scene, even though it's still gangster in a way. Uh, but with DMX, he's got, you know, he's got, you know, he's got problems with the, uh, with the girl, uh, he's cheating on her, her, um, his, his, I don't know, some chicken head to use friggin' 90s parlance is, uh, calling, calling his phone and she picks up and there's beef and all that shit but then they still make love because they're crazy and it's uh, we should point out that like his side piece is a 16 year old girl which i was just kind of like oh I, I didn't realize that detail yeah that doesn't age well no especially when, she <laughs> on the phone, when she's just like yeah i'm 16 so we don't really do much but i did just blank his blank the other night so R. Kelly clearly had some fingerprints she on blanked him. Blanked his blank. Mm-hmm. So where do we go from there, Phil? And oh, Kit, sorry, Scott, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. Go ahead, Phil. Where do we go from there? All right, so we from there, uh, we end up back at uh, Buns, or in the voiceover, like Nas alternates between like calling DMX's character Buns or his first name Tommy. Mm-hmm. So we're back at his, yeah, yeah and his uh, his name Tommy was actually a reference to Joe Pesci's character in Goodfellas. Right, right. So we're back at uh, DMX's actual crib, as was established in the intro, where um, Nas and uh, their associate, who later went on to play Rebe on The Wire, they're watching Gummo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's insane i didn't know that they were watching gummo sorry I, uh, I waited. It's, it's all good it's all good i i wrote down in my notes because I, di- I didn't realize it was gummo either because i've never seen it was they watch a movie where foul-mouthed children berate a rabbit <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly it mm-hmm. and it, it seems to me like this i guess in retrospect this is hype williams going for like film school street cred or something yeah, like, I watch movies. <laughs> I know it's hip. Um, I don't know if Nas and Buns, I mean, if um, Sincere and Buns are enjoying the movie, but they're watching it. Buns is not watching the movie. He's just playing pool by himself. 
and like Nas and Weeby, like they're just like talking about like their earnings and like DMX is like telling them to shut up because you know uh, the wifey's trying to sleep and <laughs> yeah. A lot of, here's the thing about the dialogue, and I'm assuming that uh, they didn't have a lot of actual, like, script, but more outline, like, this is kind of, we want you to say these things, but then kind of ad-lib a little, like, what would you say? Because um, a lot of the dialogue is basically what you would hear, like, in the background of a rap song, you know, like, they're counting money, you know, and the boys are in the back and stuff like that, and they're, they're, they're trashing each other and shit. So that's basically what the dialogue is throughout the film. Mm -hmm. And we should point out that... Um... Uh, Keisha, that's the 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 girlfriend slash wife of Tommy Buns, is played by uh, Terrell Hicks, who in reality is actually a rapper. And the music video that she's watching, um, I think, when this happens or just before bed, is in fact her own music video, which had yet to come. That's what you do. Yep. <laughs> so they they're carousing. Wakes up. Uh, uh, Tish, Trish, Tish, Tisha, Keisha, Krisha. Keisha. Keisha, Keisha, and um, basically she berates them. They leave, and uh, Buns goes in to shower, and that's when uh, Keisha gets the phone call from his 16-year-old side piece. That's when things get icky, and they make weird love that seems passionless, uh, overcut with um, with Nas and his wife also making love. Yes, Kit. You also very nearly get to see um, DMX's balls and ass, but uh, not quite. <laughs> yep, that's what it's always concerned about. Do we see? Well, you got to know. Yeah. I think we should also point out um, the actress playing Nas's wife is uh, T Boz from TLC. Oh, from right! I did recognize her. That makes yeah. sense. So where do you go? Where do we go from there, Kit? Oh man, um, I can't remember if they leave there or not, or, um, well, there's, okay, yeah, so I guess it's the next day and then they meet up again, because they're, they're counting loot or something in somebody's basement. Oh, and they're introducing the, uh, the two young guys, the two, um, the two up-and-comers. I forget what their names are. Oh, right, I think that's like someone's grandmother's basement, and it's like the two young guys that are like, come on, let us do something, school sucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of the worst acting in the movie are done by these two gentlemen, but that's fine. I don't know who they are. They must be up-and-coming rappers, too, because how else did they get the job? Scott? Yeah, I was just going to say, it's, it's, it's kind of strange that they never really set up what their actual crime is or what they're doing. I mean... Or what their goal is? No, it doesn't make any sense. You know, DMX goes to meet... I mean, jump ahead a little bit. DMX goes to meet the, uh, the big ox, the original Don Dada, the top dog to get drugs to sell but you know nothing's ever discussed no go ahead kit oh uh just um i let this movie employs one of my favorite um movie tropes too is the um uh there's a you hear a news report i think uh when dmx is i don't know he's he's waking up or something about uh, a new form of heroin it's even worse than than regular heroin it's heroin <laughs> too <laughs> which i always love for movies it's like the super crack from Frankenhooker. It's not just crack, it's super crack. But um, I do want to point out that anytime they watch the news, the news they're watching is MTV news. <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize that MTV news covered local crime issues, but apparently it does. It does, yeah. So, you know, something interesting. I was reading an interview with Hype Williams in preparation for 
this to try and understand his inspiration, quote unquote, to his for mindset. The yeah. And his mindset was he wanted to show the youth of 1999 and how they really are and how they were raised on. And he specifically says the MTV generation. Mm-hmm. So it's it's fascinating that you bring that up because I didn't notice that the news was from MTV, but he specifically references as MTV as created these people and created these imagery. And I think what he's trying to get at is that through watching all these rap videos that ironically he produces and films, the people have now absorbed it. And this is now their idealistic life and they're kind of lost. I think that's the message uh, it lost in this film because it kind of comes full circle near the end where they do a complete 180 and start getting into religion and yeah, Africa and all kinds of things that have no no other relevance in the movie. We, we, we shouldn't skip too far ahead too soon, but it is, yeah, it's a pretty cop-out ending. Just, um, hey, all this cool sure. stuff that we've been depicting all along, it's bad, it's wrong. <laughs> well, <laughs> spoiler alert, but yeah, I kind of... I kinda, I was kind of tickled when all of a sudden you had the scene, you know, near the end of the movie, both Nas and DMX are showing the progression of how they've evolved, and they're both wearing glasses. To, that, <laughs> they both start wearing glasses. <laughs> they like to read now. <laughs> well, I just, DMX does have a line in the movie, like where he's like, oh, "I never read, man, never." <laughs> well, that was well. What was the? Well, no, the line was so it started with like. Uh, Nas was getting kind of like deep. He's like, hey, man, do you ever wonder what our greater purpose is in all of this? And DMX is like, oh, it's that book you're reading, man. You know, fudge a book. And I, you know, <laughs> paraphrased. And then when Nas is like, well, what's, what's the last book you ever read? And he's like, nothing. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and it's interesting looking into DMX's actual real life background. He, uh, he he went to to juvenile hall detention facility when he was 16 for stealing a dog. Then he broke out. Then his mom forced him to go back. And then he got out. And then he was back in like jail again like two years later. So he clearly has an understanding. And like by the time that they made this movie, like DMX I think was only like maybe like 27. So it's crazy to think of the life they lived and how like yeah I guess that's what you would think of if someone you know turns their life around they read books and they wear glasses and suits and ties but so let's jump ahead so they decide they get the the thumbs up from ox to start selling drugs in omaha hold on what do we skip over kit uh, just we we uh we skipped over checkoff's humiliation uh which is oh. always important uh, where they're counting money, as you do, um, in the basement. Um, and we meet, I guess, one one crew member that, um, I don't know, nobody likes. Is that the guy named Who's Black? still drinking 40s and they're all making fun of him. I can't remember what his character name is. But, um, you know, they're making fun of him for drinking 40s and he's too drunk and he's, he's slobbering and spilling stuff. And he starts talking back to DMX's character, who then, in the most insane... Uh, one of the most insane parts of the movie starts shooting the ground with his gun <laughs> and demands that the uh, yeah <laughs> and demands that the man take his clothes off. Just shooting the ground. It's you wouldn't hang out with this person. This is not this is not a character you want to follow through the movie. Um, and he makes the guy take off his clothes while they count the money, humiliates him, and you see the guy going, one day you'll get yours, man. And it's like, well, well, we'll see this guy again towards the end of the movie, and of course we do, spoiler alert. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so, uh... But then, yeah, we get the, we get the drugs. And they decide to go to Omaha, Nebraska, which I don't understand why that's the hotbed of, I guess they never had heroin before or something. Go ahead, kid. Omaha, Nebraska, where, where all, like, the gangsters, like, perm their hair, and it's, it's so weird. I don't understand <laughs> the depiction of Omaha, Nebraska gangsters. Who yeah. is that movie? I, I never understood that, but he's my favorite, for sure. <laughs> I don't like this. I don't like this. Yeah, just eating a banana. <laughs> you know what? I think There's that was an influence on, like, Method Man's hairstyle on the deuce. Yeah. <laughs> Weird, ugly perms. So, yeah. yeah. In Nebraska, everything is going well. It's going really well. They have a cop on the take, apparently. Well, they and can just run through red lights, says DMX does at one point. Like... And right in front of a cop, and he says, like, I can shoot, you know, someone on the street. No one's going to stop me. He's like, do you think I care about that bitch-ass cop? <laughs> All right. <laughs> and it's true. Like, the cop doesn't do anything. He's right at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and then what happens from there, Scott? Oh, jeez. I... Oh, this is where, sorry, to, to steer you, Scott. This is oh, where um, the top dog... Uh, who I don't know if we really described well enough, but he's really into soccer and oh, um, dropping Jamaican slang. Basically, the two things that he does well. Mm. Uh, he has one line, though, that's like, just like, oh, you know, on the... What's he say? Oh, I, I run shit. I kill for nothing. So, you know, he's a bad dude. I just want, I want to point out before we get into this. So, another interesting tidbit is that all the weed in the movie, whenever they smoke a blunt... <laughs> is real i knew it you could tell and they are this movie is basically uh just dude smoking weed it is the entire yeah. film is gratuitous weed smoking well even the it, there's not like movie. there's not like five seconds until somebody's like lighting a new blunt like it's every like there's five blunts um lit a scene but even their plan of like all right first of all we're gonna get some drugs then we're gonna go to omaha and we're gonna make become rich and then we're going to move back here, and I'm going to go to Jamaica and kill a guy, and you're going to go to Africa, and everything will be fine. Well, that's not really the plan. This, this thing's going to happen. I was, uh, I was telling Scott, so uh, the top dog calls in a favor from DMX, and he says, the favor is you come on this vacation to Jamaica for me. And then they go down to Jamaica. Yeah. And then Don Paul jumps on stage for a little bit, which is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> what did you think of the, uh, the Jamaican vacation, Scott? Well, as well, no. what did I think of it when I watched this in 1999, or what I think? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to hear both perspectives, yeah. actually. 1999, I was all into this, of course, man. It was made for my target audience. You're watching this thing. It, it's not really making a whole lot of sense. It's a bunch of gangster tropes with really cool imagery, with hip-hop stars, which I thought was a brilliant stroke of genius to cast them at the time. It made sense. Yeah. Uh, Watching it as a 38-year-old man, I'm like, what What the hell are we doing here? I mean, why are we even in Jamaica right now? Uh, it was fun to leave New York for a little bit, but that story it needed a little bit more weight for the whole thing, I think. I think they should have focused more on the relationship between Nas and DMX and Ox. I think that would have made for a much more fascinating story, to be completely honest. Um, so just as a sidebar, in preparation for this, I recently rewatched. I don't know if you, you guys remember this, but there was quite a few of these types of movies made at this time. Um, oh, Belly, uh, 
the most popular ones. Um, but one I watched recently was State Property, which was made a year or two after that. That's all with Jay-Z's crew and Beanie Siegel and Memphis Bleak, Dame Dash. And there's a lot of the same tropes. And the difference between that one and this one is that it kind of follows Beanie Siegel's rise into selling these drugs and getting everyone and what his goals are. I mean, it's not the godfather by any stretch of the imagination, but it's kind of the same thing. Whereas in Belly, I felt like it's just, it's not really a story. It's just a collection of different ideas and general tropes that were very prominent in hip hop at that time from all those records from DMX, Jay-Z, the Ja Rule, you name it. These were all the stories that we're telling over and over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, DMX's persona, basically, his rap persona, you could sum up as being like, he's a violent criminal and a thug, and he's, you know, he dies for his uh, his Rough Riders, but he also struggles with uh, wanting to be accepted by God and being a better person, mm-hmm. basically. Absolutely. I do want to say the plot of this movie almost seems like it was described by like when a 10-year-old tells like an interesting story, like, and then this <laughs> happened, and then they went here, and then they did that, and they were in Jamaica, <laughs> and then there was a shootout back in New York. And then, and then, and then. So it's like, yeah, it's definitely like a loose collection of ideas here. Well, yeah, to be honest with you, I I even watching it it yesterday, I found it hard to follow at times, even though it's so simplistic. You kind of, well, who's this person? And what's this person? Who's the guy with the perm? And why do they know him? And why does, like, I, I found it confusing. There was a there's a point in the movie where uh, DMX gets locked up and he phones Nas. That's his first phone call. And Nas tells him, he's like, I thought I told you, man, I'm not going to mess with you anymore. And I'm like, homie, what? When did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, and here's another funny part. That totally contradicts a major plot in the movie where the one guy who got locked up called DMX's house and that's how the feds tracked him down. So then when DMX is in jail, he calls Nas's house. Yep, <laughs> completely forgot about that. <laughs> because that falls under logic of that was an issue in that scene, but it's not an issue in this scene. Exactly. It almost feels like they're making it up as they go along. Um, yeah, and I don't understand. what was. Why did Method Man go to assassinate the, the guy with the perm? Because uh, Knowledge, uh, who we only kind of hear in phone calls, uh, he's, the, uh, he's the cat that uh, DMX doesn't like, but he's Nas's boy, and it's kind of a rift between them. Well, he's the one who got arrested and had the feds come to DMX's house. That was the whole, that was that whole point, but we don't really get into it. He's a Um, scheming dude, basically. He's, he's one of these guys that you might know if, if you listen to these rap songs who like, who schemes on the side and plays both sides and he's not to be trusted. And of course, the right. But how would the perm come into all of it? Oh, he, uh, he's the one that, um, well, I guess we're, we're jumping ahead, but as DMX comes back from Jamaica where he killed a dude with a mohawk, um, Right? That was DMX that killed him, right? That was DMX. Pretending to be a bum. Okay. DMX in a wig, yes. He's wearing like a dreadlock wig as well, which I thought was really funny. Not clear why they needed DMX to come down there and do that, but... I just love his whole plan to take him out was like, I'm going to dress like a homeless person. I'm going to wear this wig, and then I'll walk up to his car and get him. I'm like, that's such a... like a charm. It's it's such a Monty Python sketch, though. (laughs) The man walking on the street with my dreadlock. And of course, course, if you applied any logic to it, you'd have to think that how would he know he's coming down that road in that car at that particular time? So he's probably standing out there for weeks on end. (laughs) (laughs) 
Uh, I see the lost tapes from Belly. He's playing the part, just like <laughs> collecting loonies uh, while uh, squeegeeing car windows. As we see in the in the movie later, uh, the character does like going deep undercover. Like he becomes like like a a Farrakhan acolyte, basically. Yeah, that's right out of left field, but we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> but. Uh... <coughs> So Phil, where where do we go? Uh, yeah, they uh they they go after the guy in the wig because uh, he's the, he actually calls the New York police because they're they went down to Omaha, Nebraska, and they're taking over his turf. So he calls the New York Police Department and says, "These are the dudes you're looking for. They're down here selling drugs." And then they, I don't know, they go down there and bust them. Yeah, but I think it was the FBI because they crossed. Oh, well, that makes more sense, I guess. Yeah, it would have become a federal issue. And then Phil, where do we go from there? So, uh, I guess, like, when Method Man, like, shows up to town, uh, like, they've got, like, Pennsylvania plates. I think, like, Method Man pretends that he's, I don't know if he pretends or he actually is, like, uh, knowledge's Philly connection. Mm. He's basically, Method Man is basically his character Cheese from The Wire in this movie. He's no different. But he, he seems to be more of a mus- the muscle than, you know, like, a lieutenant. He seems to be more like knowledge is muscle, although that's not quite clear. Yeah, a lot of things. So, so Method Man and um, Perm Dude, like they like agree to meet up at um, at a strip club. Another, so we're like another strip club scene, although this is a uh, way seedier strip club. This is an actual strip club, yeah. Actual strip club, yeah. Authentic Omaha. (laughs) <laughs> the Nebraskan one, yes. Yeah. Uh, frequented by 311, presumably. Um, so, uh, Perm Dude, uh, Rufy's Method Man. Yeah, which didn't work out for him. No. Not because, at all. Because uh, things escalate pretty quickly from there, and uh, Method Man uh, pulls his piece out, and... Uh, shoots him and then the bartender has a huge shotgun and he shoots Method Man and uh, Method Man uh, runs out of the strip club and uh, he has somebody waiting for him and he escapes. He also shoots at a cop car. (laughs) I love how inconsequential the cops are in this movie. Like They get shot at all the time. They're not investigating shit. Not only does he shoot at the cop car but the cop car doesn't give chase but (laughs) hit. I noticed did you notice who the driver was in that car, by the way? No. That was Ghostface. That was oh, okay, yeah. You did see him earlier when uh, when uh, Method Man's character is first introduced. He's on a phone call, uh, sitting in a laundromat, I think, or something. And uh, I Ghostface, totally missed that. Ghostface is sitting there in the laundromat with him. Yeah. Also, when Method Man does eventually meet his end, he's wearing a Wu-Tang t-shirt. So it's just... I, as, as you... By the way, I also love when uh, Knowledge first comes on the scene, again in a phone call. Most characters are introduced via, via phone call. Um, he says, yeah, man, I'm just in the WooWare store and I, I saw this thing on TV. Knowledge born. What's the science? <laughs> What's the recipe? So, speaking of which, so Knowledge actually is played by a dude named Power who's like an associate of the Clan. I think he was like... A behind the scenes dude. I don't think he was a rapper. He wasn't Street Life? Uh, that's who I thought that could no, be. He wasn't but... Street Life. But okay. I, I, 
I think he was like one of Riz's associates. Um, okay. Because he was also in the James Toback movie, Black or White, which also ended up in the movie. By the way, a part of one James Toback. Yeah. Yeah. Screw that guy. Yeah. <laughs> if you're if you're interested in what's going on with James Toback, just Google it. I feel all the hate. Um, yeah. But uh, we're not here to talk about James Toback. We're here to talk about Nas and DMX. Um, yes. So we're like I. This is the part of the movie where like I just lost complete like. Okay, <laughs> man. Well, like, yeah, it's it's hard to keep track. I mean, they provide enough narration, and again, the, the title cards, which are hilarious, because it'll be like, uh, I guess I, I guess they go down to Atlanta, Georgia. So the title card will be Atlanta, Georgia, 1999, and then the narration in the next second is so down in Atlanta, Buns was. It's like you didn't need the title card then if you're just gonna say where. He's... <laughs> and then there's another one where the where the the plane is flying in from Jamaica, and it's clearly the New York sci- skyline, and it says New York. Like you don't need to do that hype, but I, I, I just want to point out the narration in this also makes no sense because it's just them rambling on about something that's more of an opinion than an actual plot point, and then the next scene has nothing to do with it. Like it's very bizarre that they chose. I don't know why they chose. Absolutely. Yes, Kevin. I, I could tell you why, because they watched Goodfellas and Casino probably, and ben, thought that's a cool way to tell your story. Sorry, Scott. What no, were you? No. Well, I was just mentioning it. The reason for the narration it has to be Menace to Society. Menace to Society is oh, okay. probably the, the the consummate urban drama, if you want to refer to it that, in my opinion, more than Boys in the Hood. Uh, the Hughes Brothers, if you haven't seen it, I mean, do yourself a favor and check it out. It's a, it's a disturbing, powerful, emotional tale from the streets. And... You have to remember that came out in 1992. That movie was everywhere. I mean, that's still a cult classic. It's referenced in hundreds of different raps and rhymes. Even today, it's still brought up. Yeah, and it's you can okay. tell you can tell it was a massive influence on this. So I think the reason is, you know, when you're when you're watching this, you realize that it reeks of novice filmmakers, right? From the screenwriting direction to the acting. It's all just a jumble. It's a bunch of loose ideas on other things that were cool that they tried to replicate. Yeah. Well, the, the you can always tell about a novice uh, filmmaker is they include gratuitous shots of people smoking. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it's the coolest shit. We get a lot of that, yes. Although I will say uh, Maneater is a movie where people smoke a lot of cigarettes. Did you say Maneater? Oh, no, I, I did say Maneater. I meant to say uh, Manhunter. <laughs> I'm on that, I'm on that hip-hop mindset, man. I'm just... Although I will argue in Manhunter, they're smoking while working, as opposed to pausing everything to step outside and just do a... No, that's true, but people are just constantly lighting cigarettes in Manhunter. It's more of a stylistic choice. That's a Michael Mann thing. I, Hype Williams is not Michael Mann. No, 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 no. Not yet. No, I I think the actors were just told that they could smoke on set and then they just didn't stop. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But he's like the, the urge to get a camera every time somebody lights up. I can't imagine they bothered to ask. I'm sure they just did what they were going to do. It's like, yeah, I'm just going to roll this uh, two-foot blunt. And just... I, I, I can imagine, like, uh, like, like, hi, do you think my character would be smoking a big blunt in this scene? Oh uh, yeah, Nas, he probably would. <laughs> so, 
to continue with the story, it gets super convoluted here. It almost feels like they wrote half the movie and then didn't know where to go with it. So all of a sudden, DMX is on the run. And oh, well, any of you guys by this, but then all of a sudden, he's doing petty crimes to uh, get himself by, which have nothing to do with what's going on. Yes, Kit? Oh, sorry. Um, yeah, I guess he's hiding out in Atlanta. Is that where he's down to? And he's yeah, doing yeah. petty crimes with the with the young guys. Yeah, absolutely. And then in a scene that's very reminiscent of Scarface, um, they're in a restaurant where he basically aggravates the two kids that instigates them to end up shooting one another. It's kind of a combination scene of Scarface and again, Menace to Society. Of the scene with Samuel Jackson, it reeked of that for sure. Um, and in a comical scene, DMX just sits there and continues to smoke a blunt and drink while he waits for the police. Um, and then that's where the movie really takes a, a left turn if someone wants to pick it up from there. I will, yeah. He, so he goes to jail, uh, and then he gets sprung by this mysterious man who we never get a good look at. Who hires- This is the most amazing thing! I'm sorry, I'm so excited, because it's clearly Frank Vincent. But why the frick can you never see his face in this movie? Was this a contract dispute? What the hell is going on? I think it was just like, he's a serious <laughs> operator and we don't know where he came from. Okay. And because that's the thing, in their initial encounter, they only shoot it in wide, in extreme wide shots. So it's but you've got Frank Vincent in your film. One, you've got a legitimate actor here. Why are you not displaying him close up? Like, it boggled my mind. What a choice. <laughs> well, Frank Vincent did show up in a lot of rap videos around this time. No, that's true. He was always, yeah. Where you does, know, like, you, you kind of work yourself into a corner when you do, like, a Scorsese mob movie, you know, like... Oh, yeah, that's true. Frankie Carbona was, like, suing The Simpsons, like, during, like, its 29th season for uh, using his likeness, you know, so... Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, so, where do we go from there, Phil? So, yeah, so uh, Frank Vincent, he's uh, pitching to DMX. So uh, here's the deal. Uh, we want you to uh, hit um, this Mr. Farrakhan type. Uh, but it won't be easy. you got to, like, uh, really uh, go deep undercover. And, uh, and uh, you do your uh, part of the bargain. Uh, we'll get you out of jail. If not, it's uh, upstate for you. Yeah. And uh, so he then goes to, like, get undercover with the, the black Muslim leader. And it starts to take. He kind of goes native to, to, you know, talk a phrase. And during this time, Nas and um, is it T is her name? Tebow. Yeah. yeah. They decide, let's, let's move to Africa, you know, without knowing anyone or really understanding the economic situation of Africa at the time. <laughs> They're like, yeah, let's move to Kenya. That seems like a great idea. Did they say Kenya specifically? No, his daughter's name was Kenya in the movie. Ah. Oh, but at the end, doesn't they say like, oh, the skies in Kenya are so bu are blue? No, he's mentioning his wife and his daughter's name is Kenya. Uh, I believe. Yeah. It's not really made clear. Just like it's not really made clear why he suddenly decides he's going to go to Africa other than to visit the motherland. Uh, it's just... um. Nas's character has gone undergone a change by this point in the movie. I think we got half an hour left, but it's never clear to me like when that exactly happened. And he's like, 
I remember there's like one bit of narration where he's like, and I read the book the minister gave me. And I'm like, I couldn't remember when that happened. <laughs> so, yeah, that's not in there. One thing I did notice, <laughs> though, is that if you guys see who the head of this is, he's actually was the head of the NAACP. Um, yeah. in that. And again, I think there's a lot missed in the translation and the intent of the filmmakers where, you know, they're trying to say, this is the MTV life that's created. Look and aspire for greater things. And then it's just a mishmash of what they think these greater things are uh, going to Africa or yeah, just vague. All things. It's not really spelled out or made clear. Wearing the, glasses, reading books. The greatest irony of it all is that they have this anti-drug, anti-crime message, anti-MTV like MTV lifestyle message, but all the real people involved in the movie just kept on doing that. Like, well, they glorify it. They glor To your point, they glorify it to the hill. They make it all look cool. I mean, that message was lost. In fact, if you watch the credits roll to the end, they even have a quote that basically says that. This is saying, this is for the children of the future and you have to make change. But yeah. that was never impressed upon me in 1999 when I watched this movie. I was like, man, this looks awesome. I want to smoke blunts with X. Yeah. <laughs> I want to wear those contacts that they wear in the club, man. Those look cool. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> oh, so let's let's we're we're inching closer and closer to um, the finale here. So, oh, we get um, we gotta we cannot fail to mention the Scarface scene, the famous Scarface scene, because this pops yeah. up. Oh, yeah. So basically, randomly, some uh, some hoods in Jamaica, I guess, are talking, and they're like. Um, Oh, what's his face? Oz has betrayed us. He killed, uh, he had, what's his face? Killed the Mohawk guy. So, so, um, yeah. Yeah, so we got to take him out. So By the way, the, the head uh, assassin, the female assassin in the film, her name is Chiquita, like the banana. Oh. Cool. Yeah, I, that, that struck me as an odd, like, detail. I wrote her down. Also, as, he also wears a mask. Uh, yeah, a gimp girl. She wears a gimp mask and a suit. Mm-hmm. When she goes to assassinate the, the original bad boy Dantata. I love how she just waits for all the other henchmen to get killed before she makes her move. Well, that's yeah. what you gotta do. That's a costly trip, man. You gotta, you gotta go kill this one guy and you lose like 10 men. More dramatic that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, the hilarious thing is that this is all shot in the dark and these like henchmen, like they're, they all have like laser sharpshooters and, and don't they all have terrible aim. Nevertheless, meanwhile, yep. Ox, he's like just sh knocking off all these guys one by one in the dark. On the floor, no less. Yeah. And hype yeah. really. For, for being the uh, original bad boy of Jamaica, he's had a pretty lax security system. No security! <laughs> it's just him! Just but um, also, Hype really. Sorry, sorry, Graham. But Hype Williams goes to uh, one of his things where he does the POV behind the gun, like a video game. He did this in the, um, in the strip club shooting as well, where Method Man had two guns, and all of a sudden you were uh, like Doom video game perspective. Yeah. So Ox is, is... Did you catch any of that? Oh, yeah. I caught the whole gist of like the first-person shooter thing. Okay. So Ox is dead. Um... Uh, Buns, a.k.a. Tommy, is starting to really, really get into this religion. And Nas has a clear plan of, like, we're going to get out of here. But it's interrupted by Method Man and uh, Red Man. And Red Man's in this too, right? I don't think so, no. 
No, I don't, I don't know. I don't think Red Man is in there. I don't know who. Yeah, I don't know who uh, Method Man's other associates are. I didn't recognize them aside from Ghostface. Yeah. So they uh, Nas is talking about like, oh yeah, I'm going to Africa at this um, uh, at a salon at a barber shop. Sorry. So and he goes, <laughs> He's never coming back. Yeah. And then he just walks outside. By the way, gratuitous, like the foreshadowing in this movie hits you in the face with a hammer. Like, it's about the barber's chair, and they linger on his back where he's wearing a holster with a gun in plain sight of everybody to be like, ah, he's got a gun. So something yeah, might happen. There's a lot of, like, uh, you know, screenwriting for beginners tips kind of things that you notice in this movie. Like, oh, they, they're they planting seeds that will harvest be harvested later. Here, you can tell. Yeah, like one second later. Um, <laughs> and then he goes outside, talks to some guy with a baby, and the guy with the baby spots, like, the assassin's coming, and he's like, so I gotta go, and then just... <laughs> <laughs> you notice that, too. Does not warn him at all. <laughs> so it's been nice talking to you, but uh, it's getting late. Oh, my God. Um, did I mention that man didn't have a stroller with him, either? No, no. he just had a baby in a blanket. <laughs> That might be like a like a real hood thing that they're trying to translate. Like, man, dudes couldn't afford strollers or something, and you'd always see a guy actually holding a baby. Like, a lot of these I, things I are loosely based on. I think they they just wanted to make the scene as impactful as they could. Throw <laughs> a babe in his arms. It, made, it really made no sense, but <laughs> yeah. And um, so then there's the shootout with uh, Method Man, and or no, did Me Method Man dies by the hand of. Uh, of uh, T-Bone, right? He's not dead yet, yeah. No, right. no, he doesn't die until the very, very end. It's the uh, the guy who got humiliated on the couch earlier, I told you, it was just Chekhov's right. humiliation, so oh, he shows up. right, yeah. We haven't seen or heard from him since the beginning of the movie, and now here he is to exact his revenge. Yeah. On not even the guy that antagonized him, so it makes no sense. No, so Nas gets shot, fires <laughs> back, the barber shoots a gun as well, switches the gun with Nas, Nas drives home. He That's is a very cool barbershop. By the way, Nas yeah. gets shot, and he it be it carries on like he goes home, and he's like, "I've been shot." They never explain how he gets better. They never explain did he go to the hospital? Was he deals it with it. Like emergency. He went to Africa, man. You already. I swear, half the dialogue is like an intro to a rap song, like where he'll come in and he's talking to his girl, and he's like, "Yo, man, I just got shot. Yeah, they shot me in the leg, and I killed both of them." And and then the like the beat will start, then the rhymes will start. That's how also, a lot of the dialogue works. That it's like he, he couldn't show like he couldn't show any like weakness in front of his girl. It's like I got shot, but I killed both of them. Don't worry about it. Man. <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then we're set up to the whole New Year's Eve situation. It's New York City. We see Times Square lit up like a Christmas. We're, we're, we're jumping ahead now. Um, okay. Method Man, he's uh, made his way into uh, DMX's uh, house. Right. And um, Keisha's there, and uh, Method Man throws Keisha through a coffee table, and uh, yep. Oh, sorry, he's uh, just, he's previously done this to, uh, to Nas's wife. I, I don't know if they're married or not, whatever, his, uh, his girl. He's previously done that where he showed up to her house and threatened her, but she had a gun and scared him away. 
Anyway. Mm-hmm. Continue, Phil. Yeah, so uh, he throws uh, Keisha through a coffee table. Keisha grabs a blunt object and is beating the shit out of Method Man with it. And uh, Method Man, he's and she manages to get a hold of Method Man's piece and she shoots him in the head. And that's but it. The, but but the great thing is this is interspliced with the uh, the minister's speech to to DMX about how he's got to yes. they do some some very creative cross cutting where we get this yes. violent scene where first Method Man is just punching a woman in the face and then he straddles her and he's punching her in the face while the minister is saying these wise words about violence in the youth today and then she gets the upper hand and she shoots Method Man in the face. And, and well, we he's also talking about violence against black women, and it's like yes. juxtaposed with all like the misogynistic moments throughout yeah. the movie. Mm-hmm. And we should get we should also stress that uh, the minister is saying these things because DMX has decided to go through with the plan. He's going to shoot the minister, and he uh, he goes in. Scott. Yeah, which again leads to some very confusing character development. Um, <laughs> there's no character arcs in this movie. No. <laughs> Not any believable Um, ones, anyway. DMX starts out as the wild card. He continues to be the wild card. Then he puts on some glasses and (laughs) changed everything. And then Uh, the very next scene we see him, he's going to murder that guy. So it doesn't really make, again, a whole lot of sense. It's a a big leap from one to the next. Well, I guess we're supposed to think that um, Frank Vincent is maybe part of the CIA or something, or some, some government organization? Yeah, well, it is, yeah. They're having him... Basically, the, the idea here that they're trying to convey is that it's the assassination of Malcolm X. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, 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 yeah, exactly. That's, that's the idea here. So you have an intelligent and a powerful black man who's teaching the youth not to follow this MTV and and to do these things and to see the light and they've now hired DMX to murder that and basically so this is this is the the jump that they're trying to do it's a Martin Luther King Malcolm X thing but they're not really conveying it properly and there hasn't been sufficient enough time to set up who this priest is who should have been set up from the very beginning to be honest with you Mm. yeah um they also what part of the plan is to also plant drugs at the uh, minister's place to to really um delegitimize his whole i guess movement and it's never clear why they need to do this but it's being done well because they want to they want to prohibit and prevent the 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 young youth from growing up and from you know young black youth specifically specifically um but i i just want to point out so this is the scene that reminded me of Ed Wood's The Violent Years, because The Violent Years is a movie about a rambunctious girl gang that just causes mayhem. They drink, they smoke, they shoot people. It's like our gang, yeah. Yeah, it's very similar. And then at the end, out of nowhere, a judge starts giving a moralistic lecture about the youth and how we must do more to inspire the youth to do better and go down the path of the straight and narrow. And that's where I was like, oh, this is a callback definitely to The Violent Years. So they should have been watching that film for the thematic experience as opposed to Gummel. Yeah. Yes, Phil? Or maybe, you know, like, Belly was influenced by the old gangster movies that were still indebted to the Hayes Code. That is true. Like, the, the, the whole reason why Scarface dies at the end of the original Scarface is because all those films made under the Hayes Code could not yeah. show a criminal 
like getting away with it. They all had to have their comeuppance. Which is like all those, like all the, you know, exploitation films from the 40s and 50s and 60s all ended with a, a very strong moral. Here's something, could we posit or theorize, because this film doesn't have much as social relevance like Menace to Society or Boys in the Hood, even though Boys in the Hood is a much lighter picture. Could we characterize Belly as being the f like a pure rap exploitation film or a pure hip hop exploitation film? Oh yeah, I would hundred percent. If you're gonna label something punk exploitation, then I don't know what the term would be for this. Uh, the portmanteau, um, but rap exploitation. Rap exploitation, yeah, I guess. Totally. Yeah, it might even be music video exploitation because it was it's so a lot of hype Williams's work at the time. Mm -hmm. We should wrap up the story though, so we should point out that like so after the minister delivers his sermon, uh Buns decides I'm gonna hug basically some guys bust in and the minister says, like, no, 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 let me finish, let me finish, don't don't interrupt. And then he says, What are you gonna do, young man? And then DMX like lowers his gun and hugs him, and we assume that he has gone on the path of the right and narrow, and then we see the ball drop in Times Square. Yeah, this is sorry. Sorry yeah. to interrupt again, oh, but it's it's actually set to the countdown. You can hear the countdown while like to 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 raise tension and all of this stuff. Uh, anyway, it was cross cutting, and then we get some nice voiceover from Nas saying, "We're in Africa now, and everything's good." <laughs> Credit. They couldn't, they couldn't have got any B roll to cut to that. I know. Just just show them in like a hotel room or something, or in. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that was the one point in the movie where the voiceover narration actually provided some exposition or something. Because <laughs> they don't, they, they never go back to Nas after he got shot in the leg. He's just shot. Well, and he says, I don't care, we're still going to Africa. And I guess they do. But how would you get through security with a bullet in your leg? Like, You've also just killed two men in, yeah. in broad daylight. <laughs> Well, he was probably wearing his glasses. <laughs> <laughs> and that no was yeah. What did you guys think? Did, oh, we did. We did forget to mention the uh, the weird. Uh, I don't know if we did mention it, but where they do the the one love scene with with Shorty that I we forgot to mention it in the chronology of the film, but I guess we did uh, mention it before. It's just yeah. there, just to reference the song, though. I know you could totally tell Nas when he was like came up with the story for this was like. And then I'm going to dramatize the scene that I wrote in my album from 1994. I just read 1990. Yeah, yeah, it came out in four, but he probably wrote it earlier. But uh, yeah, I'd say it's one of his best verses, which is why you're going to use it. Mm -hmm. I was just doing one of those 30-day song challenges, and it's like a storytelling song, and that's the one I picked, because mm -hmm. uh, it's good. It's one of your definitive songs. Yeah, yeah. It, it's good story. It's like three little stories that I really enjoyed. We do um, go with I Remember Larry from Weird Al Yankovic's 1996 album, Bad Hair Day.
was the runner-up, Graham. It was it was that, and then One Love by Nance. I really recommend I Remember Larry. It's really good. Um, I remember Larry. <laughs> All right, guys. So, Phil, what are your final thoughts on Belly? Honestly, I enjoy this movie. Like, the story and the acting are obviously hot trash. But... <laughs> yeah. You know what? Like the the style, just the style and tone, just overcome cancel everything. Yeah. So it's it's really it's enjoyable in that respect. Although visually there are there are some reservations. Like you see where the budget limitations are. Mm-hmm. Like it's you know like Hype Williams is so good at filming night scenes. And he's great at filming interiors, but the day scenes look like total trash yep mm-hmm. but in spite of that I still enjoy it and like the fact that the movie cost three million dollars that's like half the budget of the videos he was shooting around yeah oh yeah yeah that's really surprising mm-hmm. I think a lot of stuff was donated I'm pretty sure none of the actors got paid or if they did it was in weed and uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> hanging out in weed like and like like I said like they used all the artists like gave up their own houses to film in. Mm-hmm. Uh, the White House from the second scene after the initial robbery is actually uh, a property that DMX owned, I think, in Florida or something like that. Okay. So they like, and they shot all over the country. They shot in New York. They shot, I guess, in Nebraska, maybe. No, no, they shot in, in rural New Jersey for those Nebraska parts and some of Jamaica. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot more sense. Maybe they used like Redman's house because I've seen like the DMTV cribs of like Redman's house and it kind of <laughs> looks like uh, Knowledge's house. Well, because you're the only one keeping it real, yeah. Yeah. Because <laughs> like it's a pretty iconic uh, MTV cribs episode because you see like Redman's like pointing out like his uh, shoebox full of cash. <laughs> He's like keeping weed in there. <laughs> <laughs> He's got like a tube of hand lotion on top of the TV. Yeah. Side note: Did anybody ever see MTV Cribs Canada? No, oh God, no. That was fascinating because it just showed the disparity between Canadian professional musicians and, or no, sorry, American professional musicians and Canadian professional musicians. I, I am a curious. People, a lot of people that lived in apartments. Yeah, how's, how's Thrust living? That's what I want to know. I don't know. But don't, don't forget though that MTV Cribs, most of those houses were rented out. They weren't legit. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yes, the Canadian Redman Red was known for showing his actual car and his house where he lived, whereas all these other guys, Ja Rule and stuff, are renting mansions and all this other yeah. stuff. Because, again, it's all imagery, right? Yeah. Exactly. My favorite was um, the. You remember that late '90s, early 2000s band? Was it Joy Drop or? Um, yeah, there's. I remember Joy Drop. Well, the singer, but she was living in Toronto and. Um, the funny thing is, it's like, oh, and this is my roommate. And it's like, oh, right. Like, <laughs> musicians have roommates. Um, but yeah, so Phil, what, or sorry, Kit, what are your final thoughts on uh, Belly? Uh, I mean, it was it was fun to watch. Um, like uh, Phil says, I think like the when we're in a, we're in a club scene or a freaking, that's when Hype Williams is in his element, when we're just driving around town smoking weed in the car and stuff. That's when Hype Williams, like, he knows where to place the camera to get the cool shot, and those are kind of fun. Um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's a mishmash of just, it's basically a stew of 90s hip-hop ideas. 
um, not um, stirred in coherently or anything. It's just kind of like, this is uh, what it is. It's a, a paper thin plot. Uh, some of the acting is really bad. Some of it's not that bad. I don't know. It's 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 there. I'm glad I watched it. Do you make some screen presence? What's that? Do you make some screen presence? He does. Nas does not. He is no. not a good actor. <laughs> no. Just does not carry off any. Doesn't want to reveal anything about himself or something because he doesn't want to no. do any line other than you know I'm just a kind of a cool guy kind of mm-hmm. persona, right? He doesn't want to break it. No, it probably explains why like. Pretty much like the only other movie he did was like that Albert Pune movie, like Ticker with Steven Seagal. And- oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Ticker. This, uh, this was like a bad period for Nas anyway. This was like Nostradamus era oh, yeah. Nas, which was just hot garbage Nas. This was nowhere near Illmatic. Uh, no. He hadn't had his uh, resurrection yet. So this was like the worst Nas, probably. And by contrast, this was like DMX's heyday, and like yeah. I, th- I think he had s- just stopped smoking crack at this point, so uh, he was also like really in his element. That'll help. Yeah, yeah. Method yeah. Man was—I don't know. Method Man's career hasn't been that great. I think Scott can agree to Cal, and then a bunch of crappy albums. Hey, man, I love Method Man. Don't ever disrespect the boy. <laughs> <laughs> This was like around the time of Method Man's second album, I guess. Like, yeah, and I remember listening to it, and it's not good. Oh, I yeah. love it. <laughs> so, Scott, what are your final thoughts on 1998's Belly? Uh, you know what? There's a, it, it's a fun late-night movie. I'll, I'll, I'll put it like this. I watched half of it last night, a couple bourbons deep, and loved the hell out of it. I watched the other half today, Dead Sober, and hated it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you know it's it's fun for what it is what i i like the performances i thought dmx was really great in it i, I didn't i didn't have a problem with nods i thought he was a good counter to it my problem with this with the movie is i wish they would have took a bit more time with the story i feel like even if it's going to be a ripoff of these different movies i think they had some interesting ideas in there that i would have liked explored a bit more and i think would have made for a much more powerful movie uh, God knows, you know, if you listen to Nas as Illmatic, you listen to a lot of his rhymes and even his later albums, the man can tell a story. Yeah. I think Ram's point, and I never thought of it like this, I didn't realize the budget was $3 million. That's insane because he was doing, Hype Williams was directing videos for Jay-Z. He was directing videos for Busta Rhymes. He was doing like, I remember at the time he was doing like $10, $15 million videos. They were crazy. Yeah. And... You know, it almost seems then now that Graham's saying this, and I'll, I'm just speculating and I have to look into it more, but it almost seems more like a passion project that he might have just did on his side. If they're shooting it at rappers' houses and using their cars and people are just happy to be in a movie, you know, this might just have been something where Hype Williams dabbled his toes into maybe get into film, to directing because I don't think he did anything uh, film-wise after this, did he? He did. They they just all tanked. They like um like let me, let me look it up here. Yeah, he did. Um sorry, just trying to find his things. I remember I looked it up like very late last night and I was like, he did more? And Yeah. I, I thought it was just music videos, but in any case, you know, to your points, guys, the, the cinematography at points is awesome. I mean, when he knows what he's doing, it, it, visually it's awesome. In other parts it's horrible. 
right? It's it, mystifying it at times. Doesn't make any sense, and you know things like that. But like you said, when he's in his element, when he's in a, when he's at the nightclub, when they're doing things like that, they're shooting around in the car, looks super cool. I'm, I'm like, sorry. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Hype Williams didn't direct anything else. That was um, director X. I was looking up last. Oh time. no. Yeah, exactly. So I think this was his one and done. So obviously, it reeks of a, a novice filmmaker. Uh, the script. They should have brought in. They should have took that story and then hired a professional screenwriter to do a pass on it. And I think you would have had a much more coherent film. Mm. Well, and I there is a Toronto connection. So director X, who was then known as Little X, was actually Little X. He was the visual uh, consultant for the movie. Oh, so he, cool! I don't know what that actually means, other than he probably was like the one to cut through the haze of weed smoke and be like, "That looks good. That doesn't." Um, <laughs> I remember. Time for music videos, he was kind of the apprentice to Hype Williams. Yeah. And he got a lot of Sean Paul videos and things like that. Little X was known. He was, I think, Canada's version, and he might have even yeah, been basically. maker, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, he, he, I think he got bigger than, well, I mean, he's still directing all the Drake videos right now. Um, Director X, um, I've never worked on one of his videos. I thought I might have worked on one of his Drake videos, but that wasn't it. But I actually briefly met Director X in 2017 at the Toronto International Film Festival. Mm -hmm. He was on the jury, uh, the panel uh, that selected my film to be a part of the uh, the, the Instagram festival at, at TIFF that year. Very cool. Yeah. And Him so and Isabelle Huppert. Yeah, so, I mean, we didn't win any awards, but whatever. Um, but the interesting thing was he presented the... Um, the the best direct the, the best film award of the of the of the program and he said the one thing i've never been able to figure out in a short film is how to tell a story and i was like wait you've been directing music videos and commercials for 20 years and you and he's like i don't know how to tell a story and at this point he'd already directed like two movies because like he's directed some movies recently he directed the remake of superfly which i'm sure everybody here saw in theaters Yep. Yeah. No. Um, but yeah, I don't want to bag on Director X too much. He's 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 his bodyguard nearly wanted to like choke me out because Director X wasn't looking where he was going, and he kind of bumped into me. And his bodyguard was like, "Hey, what are you doing?" And I'm like, uh, "He bumped into me." So it was a very awkward encounter. But uh, yeah, my final thoughts. Uh, I don't know. Like, I I enjoyed the movie just for being so insanely too much as a as a whole as an ethos it was too much and but the movie was also like in one ear and out the other like even today i was struggling like what happened to that movie like i really didn't until you guys mentioned the scarface scene i didn't remember it at all um and i took notes i mean i uh, there was such a my notes also point out like this is probably the most 1998 movie ever oh it's so of its time what were you gonna say kit Oh, just, uh, I was just agreeing with you, backing it up. Just what everybody's wearing, too. Like, that weird, what is that? That's not leather. It's, like, some weird shiny material that everybody's yeah, wearing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the interesting thing is... Pleather. Pleather, yeah, yeah. What were you going to say, Scott? I was going to say, to your point, too, Graham, it, it's funny that you just mentioned that, because at the, at the beginning of this podcast, you asked me to describe the story, and after the opening sequence, even though it's so simplistic, I went blank. I'm like, yeah. what, what did happen? And it's a strange film like that because you don't remember. There was one one scene that I kind of remember that I don't know if I've seen this in films before. I thought it was kind of interesting. I don't know if it got pulled off, but when D. It, 
I need you to repeat that. You just cut out. Ah, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> um, I don't know. Um, the scene that I liked. Well, I don't know if I liked it. Jesus Christ! Now I'm all confused. You're talking about the soccer game scene. Yeah, he's watching the soccer game. Um, and he's just he's focused on the soccer game, and then DMX is trying to convince him about the drug thing. Um, and then he turns up the volume on the soccer game, and then it's like. It's sort of like a weird David Lynch thing where it's like, um, the oh, what, what's the word? Overlaid on top of the, of the yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's superimposed onto the image, so it's like it's it's sort of drowning out what's being said. You can't even hear what they're talking about. It was a weird choice, but it's almost interesting about how like, you know, somebody like a TV can kind of invade everything going on in that scene. I yeah. thought it was a interesting way to convey that if that's what he was doing. I I think Kit, you hit the nail yeah. on the head. You're quote there should be on the box cover almost interesting <laughs> it was like it, it could it's an idea that could have been developed further and been like oh that's a cool artistic choice but it wasn't developed enough but there was a seed of an interesting idea. that that's the whole thing and i mean that that's that's the issue where it comes back to like i really wanted to like this film but it was just so hard because no ideas were really developed it, it felt like it was the whole thing was rushed pretty quickly like they probably like were like crap, next year is 1999, let's get this out in advance. But to the discussion of the wardrobe, interestingly enough, um, uh, Hype Williams directed his wardrobe stylist to say like, listen, I need the clothing not to be where we're at presently, but where we're gonna be in. <laughs> he legitimately said like, where, where, what are we gonna look like in the, like throughout the next five years of hip hop? Because I think like legitimately like right after that, you got the, um, uh, what was it, the Puff Daddy and Mace video? That's um, true. Hype Williams directed those videos. And that was 97, as a matter of fact. And oh, really? Yeah, 97 for Puff Daddy and Mace. That's when they were huge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, he kind of, like, wanted to to move the clothing into a much, a much more shining, stylized look versus the kind of streetwear that had kind of been popular throughout the, the first half of the 90s. Um, Question. Yes. Why be called belly? Well, yeah, I never figured that out. Why is it called belly? It. I don't know. I think it might have just been like one of those things that we're trying to be too cool for school. Like, what are we going to call this film? We're going to call it belly. Oh, it's probably some like friggin' slang that they don't even reveal because they're too cool for that. Like, you yeah. know what I mean? I they were always trying to invent new slang back in those days. A lot of those rappers. So sorry, Phil. Maybe it's shorthand for the belly of the beast. Ooh. Probably what it is. I don't even want to look into it because I want to believe that's what it was for. <laughs> I just thought, I thought maybe belly because this movie fills you up, but. <laughs> <laughs> Makes you want to rub your belly, rub your tummy. <laughs> what did I just see? Um... <laughs> Does anyone... I mean, I'm not talking about the unofficial sequel, but would anyone be interested in seeing a continuation of the story and where we find out what Nas is up to in Africa? <laughs> yeah. Like, which country in Africa? Africa? Yeah, where in Africa, exactly? <laughs> which what of the 50-something nations did he find work? I don't know. You That's find out he went to Egypt and he, like, uh, worked for Mubarak or something like that. He became a guard. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I would be interested in seeing like a follow up of like twenty years later, like you know, Buns goes to Africa. 
Belly two, buns goes to Africa. Find Nas who's lost his leg because he never got it seen to. <laughs> he developed gangrene. <laughs> had to get it chopped off in Africa. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, well, it's it's open. It's totally open for a sequel because it's like Nas could be like, Buns, what are you doing here? And Buns could be like, you remember those two guys you murdered on the street in 1999? <laughs> <laughs> well, Broad daylight? Their family just... He gets an extra guy to get back to the States. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Or Mr. DMX. Or the alternative could be Belly 2 when nature calls. Sure. Because they're in Africa, they're like riding giraffes and stuff. Like the w- other thing too about this movie, I noticed it's got a very distinct use of Palm Pilot early on. Like they, like, yeah. like they were trying to show like these guys are at the top of their technological game. Buns has a yeah. Palm Pilot. Yeah, this was like first gen texting. Like um, there was like a Nelly video that came out like a couple years later where it's. Where like they're texting, but it's like a shot of like an Excel spreadsheet. Oh yeah, that's the famous Excel spreadsheet thing. <laughs> oh, that's funny. All right, guys. Well, we should wrap it up. Um, so uh, I'm not sure what we're gonna be watching next time, but uh, we'll be back with more uh, movies from the pandemic at that point. So for Death by Video, I've been Phil. I've been Kit. And we are joined by for having me. Got Jerry. Thanks so much for coming back. And I am always Graham saying, please be sure to rewind, keep safe, and we will talk to you soon. Exco, give it to you. Wait for you to get it on your own. Exco, deliver to you. Knock, knock. Open up the door. It's real. With the nonstop pop out and stainless steel. Go hard, getting busy with it. But I got such a good heart that I make the mother wonder if you did it. Damn right, and I'll do it again. Cause I am right, so I got to win. Break bread with the enemy. No matter how many cats I break bread with, I break who you sending me. You motherfucker never wanna know what your life saved. That's on a light day, I'm getting down. Like it said, freeze. But won't be the one ending up on his knees. Please, if the only thing you can't steal was came out to play, stay out my way. Motherfuckers, we gonna rock. Then we gonna fall. Then we let it pop. So you can't get it Let's leave it at that Cause I